0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. And today, I'm very pleased to say we have Naomi Oreskes on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, Why Trust Science. It's out from Princeton, was out in 2019, and it could hardly be more timely. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Naomi about the book. Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Naomi Oreskes. I'm a professor of the history of science and also affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. I work on the development of scientific knowledge. I try to understand how scientists come to the conclusions they do about the natural world, how they judge and evaluate evidence. And how they decide when there's enough evidence to say that something is established scientifically. My work focuses primarily on the earth and environmental sciences, but I am interested in these, these questions as a general problem in all scientific
0: knowledge. It's funny you mentioned that because I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with a philosopher of science in which we went back and forth on how much evidence is enough. Well, exactly. that's it's a really not, tough problem it's not unique in science yeah. uh,
1: but it is, a, it is especially interesting in science because unlike in the law where there are at least stated standards such mm-hmm. as beyond the reasonable doubt or preponderance of evidence in science we don't even really have that
0: yeah right i think a lot of people get confused by statistical validity which is also a little bit arbitrary
1: <laughs> well that's right i mean statistical validity is this very strange thing that has this aura of absoluteness yeah i know fact, but it's it's completely a value judgment. Yeah. people decided somewhere along the line that a certain level would be considered statistically significant. Um, I've written about that actually, and we oh, I, think, really? I think I mentioned this actually in the White trust science, but if not, I know for sure we talked about an emergence of doubt. Um, you know we could argue that when it comes to public policy, 51% ought to be enough to tilt the balance to decide what to do.
0: Right, right. This is, a ve- this is a very tough problem with no easy answer. It's a certified hard problem, yes. um, <laughs> as the mathematicians say. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of Why Trust Science? I know it's based on some lectures and yeah. how you uh, decided to put the book together with Princeton.
1: The book Why Trust Science is really based entirely on my engagement with ordinary people talking about climate science. So after the book Emergence of Doubt came out in 2010, My co-author Eric Howley and I got a lot of invitations to talk about climate change, climate science, information and disinformation. And in many of my talks, I would talk in great detail about the history of climate science, explaining what the evidence was that had led scientists to conclude that man-made climate change was underway, and then use that as a foundation to talk about why some people were trying to muddy the waters and poison the pool of public debate. So when I would give these carefully crafted lectures, I really work hard to explain the science in a gentle and kind and compassionate way. Almost invariably, there would be someone in the audience who would stand up at the end, typically with a bit of a belligerent body language. Well, that's all very well and good, but why should we trust the science? Right. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this guy might be belligerent, but he has a point. It's a legitimate question. It's not enough just to say to people, oh, trust us, we're experts, there is an obligation, I think, of both the kind of intellectual obligation and a moral obligation to explain the basis of trust in science. And I came to think that actually most scientists were taking it for granted that uh, they were sort of entitled to public trust. And I think we live in a world where even though maybe in theory that would be nice, in practice, nobody gets to be entitled to anything anymore. Yeah. And we all have to explain if we want people to trust us, we have to give an account of why we are trustworthy
0: and this is a hard thing to do actually because a lot of science is very complicated and also there are these value judgments we'll get to that in the interview and you have to be explicit about those value judgments like statistical validity like that you know it's it's not like it's written in the stars that x percent is statistically valid well we'll get to that in a moment but i
1: would just say one more thing on that I, i don't think it's so hard because there's no absolute rule about it Um, Because let's face it, very few things in life have absolute rules. I think it's hard because it's so taken for granted that most scientists, if you said to them, well, why should we trust science? They'd be like, "Uh, uh, well, because it's science. (laughs) And that's just not an adequate answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the logicians would say that's a tautology. (laughs) Correct, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You can't do that. Sorry, that's, right. not an, that's not an explanation in the Popperian sense. It's
1: not an explanation in
0: any sense. <laughs> in any sense. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, well, you begin the book with a history of answers to the question, why I trust science? I thought that was r- really quite interesting. I've studied philosophy of science a little bit myself. And this gets us into the territory that philosophers call epistemology and then the philosophy of science itself. Can you briefly take us through this history? I want to call it like a potted history, but I don't know whether that's derogatory or not. English people say that, right? Yes. Is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. That's what
1: historians say when scientists try to do history or when philosophers try to do history. Yeah, kind of begin with history. Yeah, but just begin with like,
0: why trust people again
1: what in the old, in the ancient world would have called an epitome or in a kind of a digest. So what I did in writing this book was to go back to works that I had read over the years as a graduate student, as a professor, and to try to make sense for my readers, well, what kinds of answers have people given before? Because as you said, it's not obvious what the answer to this question is. And so one way to deal with a question for which the answer is not obvious is to survey the field of Mm -hmm. other answers that people have considered and rejected. So I look at what is essentially a history of the philosophy of science since the mid-19th century. And what I show in the first half of the book is that people have tried a lot of things. A lot of the early work in this area, say from the mid-19th to the early 20th century, is focused around what we would generally call the scientific method. The idea that there's some kind of method In science that guarantees the correctness of its results and so if we could identify what that method is then we would have the answer to our question and so i talk about what some of the methods that people thought were mostly that boils down to um, inductive versus deductive that is to say observational methods based on going out into the world seeing what's happening and trying to make some kind of reliable generalization or deductive methods where you have a hypothesis or a theory. You deduce the consequences, and then you say, "Okay, well, do those consequences hold up?" What I show is that even though there have has been a very robust discussion about these ideas by very smart people, some of them definitely smarter than me, neither one of those ideas really holds up in practice, and they don't hold up logically. You can find logical objections to both approaches, and they don't really hold up empirically because in neither case can we say that that's what all scientists have done. And it was that, that observation by historians and sociologists of science, particularly around the 1960s to 70s, which really led to the explosion of the area known as the sociology of scientific knowledge, sometimes referred to as science and technology studies, uh, sometimes reduced to the notion of social construction of science. Uh, but the gist of that is people saying, well, hold on a minute. If we actually look at what scientists really do, we find a couple of important things. And one of the most important things we find is that scientists don't work alone. So many of these other theories focused on method as if so long as the individual used the appropriate method, then everything would be fine. But really, that's not an accurate representation of what scientists do. What scientists do is very much to work together in teams and collaborations and to judge and evaluate each other's work. And if you really look at the practice of science, publications and peer-reviewed journals, workshops where papers get pre-circulated, preprint services where things can be posted mm-hmm. nowadays on the internet, all of this is organized around giving the opportunity for other people to critique your claims. And so what comes out of this and what was particularly emphasized in the 1980s and 90s by feminist philosophers of science is that it doesn't really matter how you get to the claim in the first place. Some scientists use inductive methods, some scientists use deductive methods, some scientists build physical or numerical models. The really crucial thing is what happens once you've got the claim. And so what I come to in the book, drawing on the feminist philosophers of science is that the critical vetting of claims is really where the rubber hits the road epistemologically, because it's in that kind of trial by epistemological fire that we see what claims can stand up to critical scrutiny, and what claims can't?
0: That's an excellent answer. And I can say that as a, as a historian, this seems like common sense to me, because when you publish a history paper, people come and attack you or they, they Absolutely. take it apart. Right. And, and you know, are you right or are you wrong? It's not that simple. Correct. <laughs> it's much more complicated than right or wrong. So, for example, you know, verifiability or um it's opposite, which name, its name is escaping me right now, falsifiability. Falsifiability. It's not like that. It's not like it just gets, it's not just false. Nothing is just false.
1: (laughs) Correct. And this is something else that I talk about in the book. So one of the things that Ludwig Fleck pointed out back in the 1930s was that in a way you can think of science as a game of telephone. The person introduces an idea. Then there's an exchange of ideas. There's arguments. Maybe that person goes back and collects more evidence or maybe some other people collect more evidence. And then the original idea gets modified in light of the new evidence or in light of the critiques. And over time, something new emerges, which is actually typically quite different from yep. what you started with. And Fleck says, well, so whose idea is it? Yes. You know, it's the person at the beginning, the person at the end. And he says, well, actually it's everybody. We all get credit. or We all should get credit because the knowledge emerges out of that process of proposal adjustment Modification, refinement. So eventually, what comes out at the end could be quite different from what started. And everyone who has been part of that process has some, you know, deserves some credit for the final
0: outcome. Well, this is why in history books, I don't know about scientific papers, but in history books, there's usually an introductory chapter that has lots of historiography in it where you have to go back through it and list everybody back to Aristotle that had this thought.
1: used to do that, um, uh, but they don't do that so much anymore. And so it's very easy to lose sight of what that longer process looked like. And the only way you really get a sense of it is to stand back as a historian can do and say, okay, well, here's what this debate looked like. Here's how it evolved over time. Here's what the trajectory of knowledge looked like. You know, here's where they began and here's where they ended up. And if you take that seriously, you get a very different picture of science, which is much less individualistic, you know, heroic tales of lonely geniuses pretty much all by the wayside. And instead, what you get is something that is much more social. So it doesn't mean that the theory is socially constructed in the sense of bearing no relationship to nature. No, of course, it bears a lot of relationship to nature. In fact, I mean... The closer it is to nature, the better the theory would be. But we get there through a process that's very, very social.
0: And in a sense, it's more of a... I mean, we think about the scientific method. It's more of a scientific process that involves lots of different... I want to use the word institutions, and I want to talk a little about institutions because they have come under fire wrongly, I think... And people have kind of lost trust in them. I used to, I founded and edited an academic journal. I don't think it's come under fire, but I, it was an institution and is an institution. Can you talk about the role that institutions like that, and I mean universities and colleges and departments and research centers and so on and so forth, and journals in mm-hmm. that process?
1: Sure. Institutions are a crucial part of modern science. I mean, in some sense, we can say science itself is an institution or yeah. an enterprise. I like to, I like to use the word enterprise because I think it kind of conveys the sense. So in any enterprise, there will be parts and those parts include the individuals who are in the enterprise, the methods and techniques and tools and machines and instruments they use, but also the institutional structures like research laboratories, research universities, uh, government laboratories, the scientific societies that sponsor the conferences where people come together to debate their findings, the journals where they publish peer-reviewed articles, the academic presses that might publish scientific textbooks. So all of this is part of the enterprise. And again, it's when you step back and you think of it that way, then you see this as this very social process. Now, when people first started focusing on the social dimensions of science back in the 1980s, a lot of scientists took great offense. How dare you say that what I do is social? How dare you compare what I do to a bowling <laughs> you know, right? um, What I do is exalted and intellectual. Right. I think those scientists so missed the point, and I say this in the book. If they hadn't been so busy taking offense, yeah. anyone should have the temerity to actually ask questions about what they do or why the public should pay for it, they would have realized that actually this is an argument for the strength of science, not the weakness. And this is sort of the take home message of the book. The strength of science is in, was, is in its social fabric. The fact that so many of these people can work together, I mean, in a way, it's a very fancy way of saying two heads are better than one. I mean, it's a good way, right? We have a sense of this, If you could bring a lot of smart people together in some kind of process in which they freely give their own time and their own intellectual capital, and you submit a paper for peer review and without paying me any money, I read that review. I say, I think these things are good, but I think there's some problems here or there. I send it back to you. You go back and you fix those problems. I've done you a great service, right? And then you do the same for me. I mean, not necessarily me personally, but... We all participate in this process of sharing our knowledge and our insights, and so we produce something that is stronger and more robust and more reliable than if any one of us had done it alone. So rather than seeing the the social basis of science as a weakness, I argue it's actually not just a strength, it is the foundation for why we should trust science.
0: And you get to go to conferences. (laughs)
1: And you get to go conferences, sometimes in fun places, or yeah, often, fun often places. not. Or not anymore, fun you don't. You, yeah. you go to fun places, but you never get to spend any time there. You're, yeah, that's right. Ready. So
0: would it be correct to say that this is kind of a, and I want to use the word mechanism, but that's not the right word, a self-correcting set of institutions? Is self-correcting too strong? or?
1: Well, I always like to say science isn't self-correcting, but scientists correct each other, yeah. right? I mean, the whole point of this process is that people are fallible that we know that we all make mistakes and we all have blind spots. We all succumb to motivated reasoning. And particularly once we think a theory is right, we may have a tendency to push for it. So rather than expect scientists to be some kind of superhuman, uber objective creature, which is not possible, we say, no, I mean, we know that nobody's perfect, but if we work together, we can identify flaws and fix them. And so, I don't like to say that science is self-correcting. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of a weird thing to say. But the process is highly focused on identifying errors and correcting them.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's well said. It, it, it is or should be, if it's operating correctly, focused on those things. And I think that, you know, again, as a historian, this is not a problem for me, but you have to be ready to be wrong.
1: Absolutely. I think <laughs> the most, and I've often said this. I mean, this is the thing I think that a lot of people don't understand about science. And maybe it's because the media tends to highlight super uber self-confident, typically male scientists, you know, someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, or, you know, even Carl Sagan in his heyday, you know, these incredibly smooth, confident guys who come across as if, you know, they could never possibly be wrong. But, that's a really, really terrible image yeah, to put nice. forward because the, it's the, it should be the opposite, right? In my opinion, the ideal science is the, scientist is the one who can say, hey, you know, you might be right about that. Yeah. And, and the story I love to tell comes out of one of my earlier books. So in my earlier book on the history of plate tectonics, I assembled a group of scientists who had been crucial to the development of plate tectonic theory. And one of them, Xavier Le Pichon, told this incredibly wonderful story that I thought encapsulated everything that's right about science when it works well. So in 1967, uh, or 68, sorry, I'm getting 68, he had just finished doing his PhD thesis at Columbia University, proving based on heat flow data, why plate tectonics could not be right. Then he went to the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, uh, meeting that year in San Francisco. And it was one of those conferences that everybody who ever went to it will, you know, they could tell you about it today and get goosebumps just thinking about it. It was kind of the moment when a lot of really key aspects of this theory came together and many people thought, oh my goodness, wow, like we are witnessing a scientific revolution. And so Xavier tells the story of going home and saying to his wife, darling, pour me a stiff drink because everything in my PhD dissertation is wrong. (laughs) Now, can you imagine that moment and what courage and bravery it took to admit that he has just spent five years of his life writing a thesis that's completely wrong. And then, though he writes, the next day he went back to the office, he gathered up the data and he started again. And then he wrote what turned out to be one of the most highly cited papers ever published in the history of our science up to that time, realizing that he had made a mistake, he'd been wrong, but regrouping and then quickly adjusting, pivoting and contributing to this new theory. And that, like I get goosebumps telling that story. story. It's really a story of great personal intellectual courage. And that's what we ask scientists to do. They don't always manage to do it, but collectively science as an enterprise does
0: do it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this because we're starting a new podcast on the New Books Network called How to Be Wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In which we're going to have scholars come on and explain mistakes that they've made.
1: Yeah, Um, that's great. I love that idea because, you know, we all make mistakes. And if we would just not feel like it was such a big deal, um, you know, I mean, I, I, well, I won't say bad things about my university. But I think, you know, many people, the more famous they get and the more successful they are, the harder it becomes for them to admit it. Mistakes. And so, science in a way gives you cover. It gives you an institutional structure where, you know, if you get a, a tough review, you can say, oh, well, you know, that reviewer was really a bit of a glass bowl, but, you know, he might have been a little bit right about that. And I'll see what I can do to fix it, right?
0: Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. So, um, just to introduce the concept, which I think a lot of I will call them lay people, or just people think about in terms of science, and that is objectivity. That it's somehow central to science and trust in science. But objectivity has kind of taken it on the chin in the last 50 years. Um, where does objectivity, this concept of objectivity, if it is philosophically sustainable anymore or not, I don't know, how does it fit into your picture about the trustworthiness of science? How does objectivity arise? How is it practiced?
1: Well, here I draw heavily on the work of feminist philosophers of science, particularly Sandra Harding and Helen Longino, who made an argument some years ago for what Sandra Harding called strong objectivity. So previous scholars had a model of objectivity as a characteristic of a person. So objectivity is something that inheres in me as a trait um, and a virtue, that if I am objective, then I'm a good person or I'm a good scientist, whereas if I'm subjective, I'm a bad science. So what Harding and Longinot did was to really challenge that and to say, no, the crux of scientific objectivity is not about the characteristics of the individual. It's about what the community can achieve through this process of critical scrutiny. And so what Harding calls strong objectivity and what I embrace and use in my work is to say, we achieve objectivity to think of objectivity not as a trait, but as an achievement. And the way we achieve it is through this give and take, through this interchange of different people looking at the problem from different perspectives. So we achieve an objective perspective by looking at it from many different angles. And then this becomes the, the argument for why diversity in science is not just a moral virtue, but an epistemic virtue as well. Because the argument um, that Hardy and Longino made, which I think is correct and I build on, is to say Um, if the community is not diverse and if everyone is looking at the problem from more or less the same angle, then there's a good chance that you miss things. And we certainly have plenty of examples in the history of science where that's true. But if we can assemble a diverse community where people look at the problem from many angles and are open to each other's points of view, then we have the possibility of achieving what Harding calls strong objectivity. And that's what I argue for in the book. And so diversity isn't just the right thing to do, it's actually necessary to get the
0: right answers. Yeah, this brings me back to something that John Stuart Mill did or did not say. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it was something like you need to get all the ideas out there in order to find out which ones are right.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the problem with Mill, of course, is that he has an excessively idealized view of how public debate can yield the correct answer, and certainly in the period we live in now, we know that disinformation, lies, falsehoods, and other kinds of things can poison the well of public debate. So I'm not a million. I don't take a naive view that if you just let everything bloom, it will all somehow be fine. But within the constraints of scientific communities where people have agreed on the ground rules and you have reason to believe that people are operating in good faith, and the good faith assumption, I think, is a really important one. Yes, it is but if you have reason to believe people are operating in good faith then i do think that hearing from a diversity of standpoints and letting a lot of different flower scientific flowers bloom is really important for the for the what what i right, the, call the, the progress of science
0: yeah and this brings us back to institutions and i might even i mean credentials and things like this and experience. I mean, you know, we tend to poo-poo these things as Americans, like, oh, well, credentials, we don't care about those. The fact of the matter is you need to get your ticket to the game. (laughs) Right,
1: exactly. And you also have
0: to go to the game, and the game has rules.
1: Correct. And and not
0: everybody gets the play.
1: (laughs) Right, and people who who say, oh, I don't believe experts, I mean, frankly, that's just bogus, right? Well, yeah, it's time to go to
0: the doctor. Exactly.
1: I mean, I (laughs) want to use examples of dentists, right? I mean, if you have a sore tooth, you don't call your plumber, you call your dentist, (laughs) right? And we all know that in ordinary life. So we all know, we all understand that there's a reason for expertise. And so the same in science, right? If I have a problem in climate change, I don't drag out some PR guy. Well, I mean, the fossil fuel industry does, but we have to understand that that's propaganda. So Scientific communities are based on people who are essentially the dentists of that question, people who have relevant expertise and are qualified to judge the claims that are being put forward and are, you know, and have a commitment to operating in good faith.
0: Yeah. And just to editorialize a little bit, this is something that's bad about social media because everybody gets the talk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not good.
1: Well, (laughs) (laughs) I always like to say everyone has the right to talk. But I don't have to listen. Yeah, I don't. The have problem to we have in our society is that we've lost track of who we should be listening to.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, let me ask a, a, a kind of an odd question. We had Michael Gordon on the show. I've talked oh. to him a couple of times, mm-hmm. and he says it's kind of hard to differentiate in the moment between pseudosciences and sciences. Like he he went as far as to say that there are things that we're certain we're calling pseudosciences today that in 50 years will be called science. I don't well, know if he, I don't know if yeah. maybe he was exaggerating. Yeah, I but, think he
1: was trying to, yeah. to make a point. I mean, I understand why he says that because Michael's done some very fine work on some interesting lines of investigation that sit in the liminal zone between accepted science and not. And it's certainly true. There are things that in the past were considered completely legitimate, like alchemy or astrology that we would look back on now and reject. So it is essential to historicize these things um, in order to really understand. And the whole notion of a clear demarcation criteria, we can easily say, yes, this is science, and no, this isn't. I mean, Michael Gordon is right to say that, yeah, it's not that simple. But that said, like anything that has a spectrum and a gray zone, there may be stuff in the middle that's gray, but there's also stuff at the ends that are yeah, black and white. In the tails, at any as given we say, moment, yeah. we can sometimes say, That is propaganda. We can identify that as not science because it's being run by an advertising agency or a PR company, or because we have the historical documents to show that the fossil fuel industry had an organized program that they planned in advance to confuse people about climate science. So we can say that is not science. And I don't call those things pseudoscience. They're not even, pseudoscience implies that there's some relationship with science. I mean, this is propaganda. This is disinformation. These people are not scientists. They have no scientific training. They have no scientific credentials. That's not a hard call. And the fact that there are some things that might be a hard call doesn't obviate. Yeah, but Other that, things that doesn't don't
0: follow. Happen. Right. Yeah, that, it's that, just that, like if you're a referee follow.
1: in baseball, you know, there may be some hard calls, but then there are obviously things that are just way outside the
0: strike zone. Yeah. That's an excellent metaphor. I'm going to mention that to Michael next time I talk to him. <laughs> that's a good one. And then there are
1: some things that aren't even baseball at all.
0: Right. Exactly. Well, you've got to play by the rules of the game. That's Correct. the thing. And people right. don't understand this, that they're, you know, credentials and seminars and labs, they have rules. Right. And you need to follow them. Journals and peer review. This is all very rule-bound activity.
1: Right. And, and again, it, the rules rules are not, it doesn't mean that the rules don't sometimes get broken or bent. And it's not like the 10 commandments. It's not like right. I can hand you a piece of paper that says, you know, here are the 10 commandments of science. It's not like that. But there are established practices. And many of those practices are based on track records of experience. And they may change over time. They're not absolute. But we can still recognize what, it, what does it mean to be educated? Why do we expect scientists to have a PhD? We can answer those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, I think I, you know we could actually take a page out of the uh, business world, which I'm kind of in now, having been a professor. And they talk about they don't talk about rules; they talk about best practices. Mm-hmm. This this works often, um, yeah. but they're but they're not going to say this is a, a an absolute commandment. This is yeah. probably the way you should do things. Yeah, um, frankly,
1: if, I don't really like the best practice thing because having okay. been well, having been a university administrator, I think sometimes it's an excuse for just like checking the boxes. Yeah. Oh, I did that. I did that. I did that. It's all fine. And not actually paying attention to the outcome. Yeah. But again, scientific practices are about outcomes, right? It's not enough just to have a paper be peer reviewed. You also have to have an interesting result. Yeah. Right? The
0: result. Yes. mathematicians, right. Did you get a result? Did that's you get what a they result? say. Right. <laughs> like right. a capital R, a result. Um, so uh, you mentioned the petroleum industry and things like this, and you know, again, related to objectivity, this touches on the idea of values and bringing values to your work. So objectivity is a process, a social process. How do values fit into that then?
1: Well, values are a big part of the argument for strong objectivity. So the idea that a scientist could expunge their values and be completely value neutral is not a claim that is supported by any scientific evidence. In fact, the opposite. We have lots and lots of evidence from cognitive science and social psychology that tells us that even if people think they're being objective, chances are they're not. So rather than sort of aspire to some kind of unachievable ideal or some sort of false idol of pure objectivity, better in my opinion to acknowledge, yes, of course we have values. And so again, this becomes an argument for diversity in science. I do bring my values to the table, I admit it, but I work in communities of people who don't necessarily share my values. So their perspectives will be different from mine. Mm -hmm. And that's important. And so it is really important that scientific communities be diverse um, because it's one of the ways that we can try to make sure that no one set of values unduly influences the outcome. The other thing that's important about this is that um, so values play a role in two senses. One is in terms of the actual work and then the other is in terms of how we talk about and communicate our work. So most scientists I know were raised to think that values were bad Uh, that they were something you had to deny and that you should never, ever talk about your values because if you did, that would imply to people that your science was biased. But I think that's really wrong. And I think we have evidence from, um, you know, we have evidence from marketing and from business case studies and also just from ordinary life and common sense. We know from research in social psychology that what is it that makes you trust another person? Well, one of the things that makes you trust another person is that you think that they share your values. And we see this a lot in electoral politics, where people will vote for a candidate, even though they may disagree with that candidate's positions in many specific areas, but they feel that that person shares their values. And we also see this in advertising, right? Why do do advertisers use celebrities to advertise a product? Well, because the audience, we feel as if we know that celebrity because we yeah. watch their television program, we listen to their music, and we like them and we connect with them and we relate to them on a personal level. And so, therefore, we want to use the same shampoo that Jennifer Aniston uses, <laughs> <laughs> even though our hair is totally different. So Yeah,
0: she has better uh, hair than I do.
1: Yeah, um, well, she has better hair than almost anybody, which is why she's sh- selling shampoo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. And I'm not. And you're not. And we're not. Yeah. Right?
1: But, <laughs> but here's the thing. When scientists don't talk about their values, they're not giving anybody anything to hang on to. There's no way to evaluate whether we share values with a person if they won't talk about those values. But when scientists do talk about their values, often they find that people sympathize with them. And we often find that we actually share a lot in common with our audiences, even sometimes audiences that we might not think that. And so in the book, I give some examples of that Uh, many scientists would assume they have nothing in common with an evangelical Christian. And yet, if you think about the fact that many climate scientists are concerned with preserving what many Christians would call God's creation, then suddenly you realize, oh, you actually do have something in common. You might just be using different words to describe it, but actually what you want is the same. But you can't get to that point of recognizing it as the same if you deny that it's even present.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's very well said. Well, Naomi, thanks very much for being on the show. We've been talking to Naomi Oreskes about her book, Why Trust Science? And this is an episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. And thank you for listening, Naomi. Thanks for being on the show.
1: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.